Um, Matthew chapter 12 is where we will continue tonight. Uh, yesterday, somebody asked me a funny question. Somebody asked me, like, do you ever experience conflict with other people in this world? And I'm like, uh, yeah, we live in the world, right? And I'm far from perfect. And the people I interact with, they have sin in their own lives. Yeah, you name it. If it's like work, if it's relationships, even good relationships, right? Even good relationships. If it's uh, school, if it is any arena of life, there's conflict. Conflict is a natural part of life in this world. It's going to happen. And really what they were getting at was, well, how do you respond to that conflict? That's what they really wanted to know about. But the reality of life in a sinful world is there is going to be conflict. In Matthew 12, where we've been, has been a chapter of conflict. You have the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in his holiness and perfection, who is in conflict with the self-righteous, legalistic system of the Pharisees. Chapter 12 of Matthew has been a chapter about conflict. What was the first conflict that we saw? Just give me like a one-sentence summary. First conflict that we saw in Matthew 12. Jesus and, uh, oh gosh, I forgot their names, but some guys. Yeah, the, the bad leaders. Yes, that's who it was between. What was kind of the occasion that led to it? His followers were picking grain. Yeah, they're walking through the grain field on a Sabbath, hungry, and they start eating from the grain fields. Um, and the thing about the Pharisees to keep in mind is they had taken the law of God. And they had twisted it into an opportunity for their own self-glorification, self-justification, legalism, something that is very far from God's intent of the law. But they were so wrapped up in this legalistic self-justification uh, of, of their approach to the Old Testament law, it had completely overridden their compassion. Their prideful desire for self-glorification overrode their compassion. And this was a major source of conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. What was the second episode of conflict? What was the occasion there? Let's see if anybody else has an answer. <laughs> Not, we'll go to you, Ian. It's okay. Yeah, it's great to have you on reserve. Okay. Yeah, healing the withered man. What could possibly be wrong with healing somebody on the Sabbath? Nothing. Nothing. That's the point Christ is making, right? Um, compassion and love and a proper understanding of the Sabbath is much more important than their legalistic, prideful desire for self glorification. But this all led to conflict, right? So you see in verse 14 of chapter 12, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus as to how they might destroy him. Not content to marginalize him, not content to um, even debate him because they couldn't, even though they tried multiple occasions, not content to try to push him. They wanted to destroy him because what he brought was so conflicting with 
who they were. Just think about the compassion, right? The compassion piece of it. Um, here they are. They are against all love and compassion, sticklers for the self-glorifying understanding of the law versus Jesus. What we ended chapter 11, Mr. Chris taught us. Jesus, his ministry was come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Compare that to the Pharisees who are putting a weight upon the shoulders of people that could never be carried. Uh, you, uh, we're too, each and every one of us is far too sinful to earn salvation, to earn forgiveness, to earn a right relationship with God through any system of legalism or religion. Yet that was the impossible burden the Pharisees were always casting upon others. A burden they themselves couldn't even carry. And then here comes Jesus. Hey, come to me, find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Such a contrast. Last week, we looked at a third occasion for conflict. A third occasion for conflict. Um, Mr. Preston taught us. What was that occasion? Riley? Um, a demon-possessed man who was also blind and mute was brought to Jesus and healed. Jesus heals the demon-possessed man who is also blind and mute. Verses 22 to 29. And the conflict really hits a new level here because up until in the first two episodes... Jesus is condemned by the Pharisees as a lawbreaker. I mean, the irony there. The very Son of God, the creator of this world. John 1 tells us, in the beginning was Jesus Christ. It, that he, All things were created through him. And the perfect Son of God is called a lawbreaker by sinful men. But it goes up to another level when we look at the demon-possessed man who Jesus heals because they go from calling him simply a lawbreaker to a manifestation of satanic power. They, they accuse Jesus as being, getting the source of his power from Satan. Is there anything that could be more perverse and wrong and incorrect than to call the Son of God the very power of God in flesh, instead the power of Satan? Look at verses 22 to 24. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the Son of David, can he? But when, and so in verse 23, you got people ha asking genuine questions. Can, can he be the son of man? I mean, you look, he seems to be doing the things of God. He's doing the things that only the son of God can do. Can this actually be? Like, I think in verse 23, you got some genuinely questioning, sincere people. The Pharisees butt in, though, in verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they hear these people with some sincere questions about Jesus. 
That scares them. The Pharisees hear them and say, this man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, essentially satanic power. There's three parts in the response of Jesus Christ to these accusations. And Mr. Preston led us through two of them, the first two last week. We'll look at the third tonight. The first one was first in verses 25 and 26. Jesus points out just really the untenable logic of their position. If I'm getting my power from Satan, then how is it that I'm destroying the works of Satan? So Satan's battling against himself all of a sudden. Jesus points out that their accusation purely just is not logical. The second point that Jesus makes to them is he clarifies that they have a huge dilemma. A huge dilemma. In verse 28, Jesus says, okay, so your first idea, at first it's not logical, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come, up, come upon you. Jesus is saying, hey, y'all got a big decision to make here about who I am. Essentially, because I am the son of God, you're going to have to deal with it, and you're going to have to decide what you're going to do about that. And, and the third portion of the response that we'll study tonight, Jesus warns them about the very high stakes of their decision. The reality that in their lives, in my life, in you as an individual, your life, there is no single decision, question that is more important than your response to who Jesus Christ is. That's what Jesus is confronting them with. He wants them to understand with clarity the ramifications of who he is and the decision that they're going to make. But the challenge here is he's talking to the Pharisees in this passage, but this is the exact question, the exact, I hate to call it a dilemma because I just hate to talk about it, but the exact decision with the same level of ramifications that all of us have to deal with. And your Bible might have a very interesting title for this section that we'll be looking at, verses 30 to 32. Does anybody's uh, Bible have a title for this section? What's yours, Abby? The Unpardonable Sin. Unpardonable Sin. Does anybody else have something else? What's yours? Blasphemy Against the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy, okay, good, good. Uh, what's yours say? Uh, the disciples picked me on the Sabbath. Uh, that was a few ago. We're looking at verses 30 to 32 and 12. I was hoping somebody would say the unforgivable sin. Does anybody say unforgivable sin? You do have that. Unpardonable, unforgivable. It's the exact same thing. Um, and and uh, that should get your attention, right? Like that should be something that shocks you to be awake. Because if there's any sin you do not want to commit, it's going to be the unforgivable sin, right? And so there's, first of all, we need to understand this because there is truly, as Jesus will show us tonight, an unforgivable sin that we all absolutely want to avoid. 
And so that's the first reason why it's really critical we study this. But I think it's also re really critical we study this because there's a lot of false teaching that can strike fear unnecessarily in people that perhaps, like you can actually be a Christian and wrestle with this fear because of false teaching that, oh, maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin and now there's no hope for me. There's nothing I can do. Like I'm 13 years old and I've already done this. So, you know, what's the point? No. That's not the case. We'll see when we get to the teaching of Jesus exactly what this is. And, um, and uh, I think hopefully that'll be very clarifying. Um, but the bottom line is the message here is that the decision we make about who Jesus Christ is, how we respond to Jesus Christ, is the single greatest decision we can ever make in our lives. It impacts eternity. So we'll look at this in three different sections here. Part one will be, and I'll give these to you as we get to them again. Part one, you have two choices when it comes to who Jesus Christ is. There's two possible responses you can make. Second, We'll talk about forgivable sins and the unforgivable sin. And third, the permanence of your decision. The permanence of your decision. Let's read this full passage again. So this is a third, the third aspect to the response Christ has to their accusation that he casts out demons by the power of Satan. And in verse 30, Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Here's a great thing about the Bible. God has given us a lot. We have all of Scripture, right? And so there's no passage of the Bible that you're just reading and not informing with other areas of Scripture. Like, it's not, we shouldn't ever live and act as though these three verses are the only three verses we have on what is the gospel and how are we reconciled to God, right? Like, we should probably take all of God's word into consideration. Um, but we'll start with first, what's very clear here in verse 30. We have two choices. We're given two choices. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. What are the two choices there? You can either be for Christ, with Christ, in the service of Christ, or you're against him. You are either a child of God or an enemy of God. Isn't that remarkable? That's somewhat remarkable and shocking because we like to think that as human beings, we like to think that there could be somewhat of a middle road. How many people out there are you going to find that are like, yeah, you know, I really want to be in rebellion to God. I really want to be God's enemy. Not many people, right? Most people, if you go talk to the average guy on the street, 
if they're not a believer, they probably still think that, you know, I'm probably walking the middle road with God. I'm okay. I'm not as bad as I could be. I don't, I try to stay away from the big things. Like I don't murder and, uh, you know, I try to be faithful to my family. People like to try to take a middle road, but with Jesus, there is no middle road. And the Bible tells us there are only two types of people in this world. Those who are through Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness we have in him, God's children, and they're enemies of God. Those are the only two. You are either spiritually dead or alive. Those are the only two options. Ephesians 1 through 10, or Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 is a great place to see this, right? Because verses 1 through 3 tells you how you are spiritually dead, but God then steps in and makes you alive if you are his child. And, and uh, you, you, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. The way we can take a middle ground with most things in life does not work when it comes to Jesus Christ. Imagine being in the crowd and hearing this and the, the difficult position this could possibly put you in. If you are a Pharisee, then your life has been built around this system of self-justifying glorification. Your family, your relationships, your business ties are built around this. And Jesus is calling you saying, you are either with me or against me. You either gather with me or you scatter against me. You are either my disciple or you are my, my enemy. And if you're in the crowd and you hear Jesus say this, you realize that at that point, he is calling you to a radical change of life. You would like, if you have some desire, you know, maybe I'm just Jesus guy seems okay. Maybe I'm going to try it out a little bit. Maybe I'm going to try to hold on to some of my old life, try to dabble a little in what Jesus has going on. But Jesus doesn't allow that. And this is what you always hear from him, right? Think about what he says. If anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross daily and follow after me. What does that mean to take up your cross? What happened on the cross? You died, right? Crucified. They killed people on crosses. Can you be partially dead? No. You're dead or alive, right? You don't. You can't, there were no partial crucifixions. Like when Jesus calls somebody to take up their cross and follow him, he is calling to 100% commitment. Jesus says, if anybody loves their life, they will lose it. But if anybody loses their life for my sake, they will have their life, right? That's really what he's calling the people in the crowd to. A total break from their old life and their old way uh, their old way of life to a new life. That's what baptism, if you go read Romans 6, that's really what it symbolizes, right? Is being your old self buried, dead, dead with like, like the death of Christ on the cross, and then raised to walk in the newness of life. You look at um, what Alejandro taught us 
on Sunday morning in Romans chapter 12. Um, the Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and to be a living sacrifice, right? Romans 12.1 is again the sacrificial language. There were no partial sacrifices. It was complete. When they killed the goat, they killed it 100%. To be a living sacrifice is for every aspect of your life. Does that make sense? Do you see that consistency in the call of Christ? While we live in a world that loves neutrality and loves to walk the middle ground and would love to give you a lukewarm call to be a Christian where you can call yourself a Christian and you know, it's good to go to church here and there. That's a good thing. But don't go too deep. Like walk the middle ground. You can be in church a little bit but still be in the world. No, that's not the gospel. That's not the call of Jesus Christ. 100% of the time, it is complete complete abandonment of everything else to follow him. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. It's convicting, right? Because it's Jesus really putting you on the spot. You are going to have to decide. Are the Pharisees right? Or is Jesus Christ who he claims to be. Second, and this is where we get into the really challenging part, right? Part two, forgivable sins and the unforgivable sin. He really says this twice. I'm going to say he gives you the same message two times in two different ways. So I'm going to read them both. Verse 31. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And I think he's going to say the same thing, just in different words here in verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Those are hard verses, right? I think those are very difficult verses. And, um, and I'm going to try my best to explain them, okay? It's, I've tried to, I've gone through this many, many times in my head. And just like the words of Jesus here, they, they kind of hit hard, and they're hard to really wrap your mind around. It's, you almost get the same feeling when you try to explain it. But here is what Jesus Christ is telling us, is the unforgivable sin. And that is when you recognize something to be of God, when you recognize who God is, the way the Pharisees, they realize in this passage here, Jesus Christ is God. They realize it. And that's why Jesus said, hey, if the kingdom, if, if it's by the power of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But for them to recognize in clear fashion that this is God and then to fully reject that, to fully reject God, to willfully reject what they know is the work of God, what else is there? There, There's no further opportunity for salvation. They've rejected the one and only hope of salvation, 
which is the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. What else is there, right? Like, if you reject Jesus Christ because you have doubts about who he is, you're just not really sure. You have some big intellectual doubts. You have um, some big questions. You're like the people in verse 23 up there who are like, can this really be the Messiah? I mean, it just really doesn't match up. Look, all of us were there, right? Like all of us at some point in time, we weren't born believers. We weren't born Christians. It's all the time that people who have sincere questions and doubts and just are unable to accept who Jesus Christ is at a later point when they recognize the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does that renewing work in their lives and they recognize who Jesus Christ is, they turn in repentance and they're saved, right? I mean, there's countless stories of people who were tremendous atheists. Why does he say, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man? We'll get there. That's the next part. We're, look, right now we're talking about verse 31. We'll get to verse 32 next. Um, but do you see what I'm saying? There's a difference between somebody who's got sincere doubts about who Jesus Christ is and they're having trouble versus the demons in James, right? James tells us that the demons believe and tremble. The demons recognize a lot of truth and a lot of reality about who God is. But is there any hope of salvation there? No, they see God fully, clearly for who he is, and they hate him, and they reject him. In the same way, many, I'm not going to say all, but many of these Pharisees here in the crowd, that um, undoubtedly some came to Christ, but undoubtedly there's also some that Jesus is condemning here who see with 100% clarity who Jesus Christ is that he is the son of God and they believe it as much as the demons and they hate him. They want to kill him. They want to destroy him. Seeing clearly the things of God, they hate the things of God. What Jesus is telling us here is the unforgivable sin is that willful rejection of what they fully know to be God. Does that make sense? And that's really the, the message here in both of the formulations that Jesus gives here. It, it's um, that same ultimate rejection of God. Anything else is forgivable, you know? Murder, can you be forgiven of murder? Absolutely. Can you be forgiven of alcoholism? Absolutely. Anything else is forgivable. Can you be forgiven for doubting who Jesus Christ is and being an atheist? Absolutely. When your atheism is lived out in ignorance, absolutely. But if you come to the day of your death or the day of your judgment and you have rejected the work of the Holy Spirit, there, 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 there's no further hope for forgiveness. There's no further hope for forgiveness. 
Jesus really states this truth a second way. And here's the thing. I think verse 32 can get confusing because when we think of Jesus Christ, we rightly, 100% rightly, instantly, because of where we're at in history, church history, the history of this world, we instantly and rightly think of him as a member of the Trinity. Jesus Christ is a member of the Trinity. He is equally God with the Father, equally God with the Holy Spirit, and he was equally God with the Father and the Holy Spirit here in these verses. But when Jesus is talking here, his immediate audience wouldn't have known anything about the Trinity. Like, you would have gone to somebody there listening to Jesus and be like, hey man, what do you think of the Trinity? And they'd be like, Trinity what? Who's Trinity? I've never met her. Like, they wouldn't know what you're talking about. Like, the Trinity is fully taught through the Bible, but as we've gone through church history, we've formulated these things, and I mean, I'd be interested research project. When was the first time the Trinity was used in Christian language? I don't know. It's a good question. But Jesus' immediate audience, if you're standing there in the crowd listening to Jesus on this day, go ahead. That doesn't mean we made up the Trinity, though, right? No, no. We just do that as people all the time. we got to formalize our ideas and have conversations about ideas. So we formalize them. I mean, you can go through the Old Testament, right? And like the Old Testament, even you go to Genesis chapter 1, and God is spoken of in a plurality. That's what's really odd about Genesis, in the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God, the word Elohim. El is God. Him is like the plurality of that. Whereas the Jews were extraordinarily distinct monotheists. Nobody would ever rationally accuse the Jews of believing in multiple gods. Like everybody's like, oh, that. that." In fact, they were the weird ones because they only believed in one God historically. Like in their early days, like people were like, they only believe in one God. They're kind of odd. Yet even when they talk about God, they talk about God in the plurality sense, Elohim, the plural, which is like, as you draw on, as you keep going, it very clearly becomes, well, it's because they believe three persons in this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? But, um, but still, this is like, you're thinking, when Jesus is talking to this crowd, there's this group sitting around listening to Jesus. They're trying to figure out who this is. And when Jesus talks about like himself as the son of man, a reference really back to Daniel and the future Messiah, like they're not thinking in a Trinitarian way. They're thinking like Jesus is just talking about himself here. And Jesus, when he says, if whoever speaks a word against me, the son of man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Again, what Jesus is getting at is, Look, you can doubt me. There's people throughout, Jesus' brothers came to faith in him and became followers of him when they initially doubted him and spoke against him, right? Um, There were members of Jesus' own family who thought he was crazy and like, what are you doing? Come home, please. Um, And yet they would come to faith. There's plenty of people throughout the gospels that didn't believe Paul spoke against Jesus Christ, did not believe in Jesus Christ, yet comes to faith. There's plenty of people who spoke against the Son of Man, yet come to faith when the Holy Spirit reveals to them that Jesus Christ truly is God, and it's truly the work of God and the work 
of the Spirit. It's those people who once again come to a place of full recognition that this is God. This is truly the thing of God. And I hate it. I hate God. You get to that place, if you die in that place, uh, there is no further hope. This reminds me a lot of Hebrews chapter 6, yet another very confusing passage, but which talks about how it's impossible for those who have partaken of the work of the Holy Spirit in the sense of seeing and understanding and having a clear vision of what the Holy Spirit and what God is doing, who then reject that and turn away from it, you're in the same position as the demons who believe, believe to the point of trembling, yet continue in their hatred of God. Does that help some? It is a very difficult thing to clearly get across. But um, the third thing Jesus warns them about, the end of verse 32 here, and warns us about as well, is the permanence of our decision. The permanence of their decision, my decision, your decision. It shall not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. What you do with the person of Jesus Christ, it's the most important decision you'll ever make, and it has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. There's no... You get to heaven and realize, or I should say you get to judgment, and you're standing for God, and you realize, you're like, oh, hey, this all was right. I should have... I should have repented. No, there's none of that. There is no further opportunity. Because here's the thing. Here's what it comes down to. How does somebody go from hating God to loving God and being a child of God? How does that happen? Who does that work? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that work. And you would think that If you were an unbeliever standing before the judgment seat of God, that you'd find it in yourself to repent at that point. Wouldn't you think so? But you wouldn't. Unless the Holy Spirit put repentance in your heart, even then you wouldn't repent. And that's where that's what I think it's that's under that understanding that really gets to why makes sense of what Jesus is saying. Kind of like how you go there and you're like, oh, God was real. I should have believed in it. But instead of like wanting to change, you'd be like, how could you send me to hell? Yes. Like, yes. And even then your desire to repent would be really just to get out of your consequences. Mm-hmm. Right. But, you know, go ahead. I'm talking you referencing Lazarus in the parable. Lazarus? That when he's like, he's not repenting. He's just like. Tell my family, yes. tell these people, but he's not really like, Lord, give me, I'm sorry, he's really not. Absolutely, and I meant to write this down and I forgot, but it's in Revelation. During the tribulation, in Revelation, you read of people who are suffering from the wrath of God, and they 100% know it is the wrath of God. They are 100% in the sense intellectual, not in 
the sense of a believer the way we would talk about it. But from a purely an intellectual standpoint, like the demons, they are 100% believers. And you read about them in the re- Revelation, and you think, okay, repentance has got to come, right? Like, that's, when you're getting just hammered by God, you're going to repent. And, geez, i got to look it up. I'm sorry. It's, but it, it's like they say, even though they know it's the wrath of God for their sin, instead of repenting, they curse God. They curse God. It, it's the... Um, Hardness of the sinful heart of man that unless the Holy Spirit by grace puts repentance into that heart, repentance will not come. Repentance will not come. And, and uh, that leads to permanent, eternal damnation. So the call for us is pretty obvious. The call from this passage is pretty obvious. I think you're looking for uh, Revelation 16.11. 16.11? See, I did turn to 16. I just was panicking and couldn't see it. Uh, Yeah. Um, They're getting the bowls poured out on them. And in verse 11, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. And they did not repent of their deeds. Does that just show you how irrational, sinful humanity is? (laughs) It shows you how irrational, and unless the Holy Spirit brings about repentance, it will not happen. The re- so we weren't in the immediate audience of Matthew 12, but you are in the immediate audience of the reading of Matthew 12. God preserved this for you because these truths apply just as much to you, as they do to the audience of Jesus that day. Recognizing who Jesus is, what's your response going to be? What's your response going to be? It's either repentance leading to salvation, repentance that causes you to be one who is with Jesus Christ, someone who gathers with Jesus Christ, somebody who takes up their cross, you you leave your old life behind, your old priorities, your old ties, and your life is now 100% committed to being a disciple of Jesus Christ. That becomes your new existence. Or it's rejection. Rejection of who Jesus Christ is. Seeing what he does and saying, you know, I really don't want that. I love my sin. I love my life. I love doing what I do. Jesus Christ makes it crystal clear. In that circumstance, willful rejection of Christ's call in your life shall not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. The good news is, if you're still breathing, and alive, there's still hope. The point, Jesus Jesus is not trying to give us some kind of technical explanation of salvation here where you need to sit back and go through and think, okay, geez, have I committed the unforgivable sin? 
let me run through my life and now I'm paranoid. That's not what Jesus is trying to do. Jesus is not speaking here to give us a theology lecture or a systematic theology lecture or like something you would read in a book. What Jesus is doing here is trying to take a complacent, hostile crowd that is complacent in their own self-righteousness and just shock them into life. Like, hey, do you realize what you're playing with here? You are playing with your eternal soul. So there's no need, and this would be, this is why I say you can't like develop your theology off of three verses, right? You need to study the full Bible, and we don't have time to put it all together tonight. But there is absolutely no reason anybody should ever walk away from this passage saying, geez, I hope I haven't committed the unforgivable sin already, because then obviously, what's the hope for me? No. If you're still alive and breathing today, the gospel is as crystal clear as can be throughout that for all who would come to Christ in repentance, there will be eternal life. Because if you want to repent and you want to turn to Christ with your life and follow Christ with your life, who do you think put that there? The Holy Spirit. You didn't derive that on your own. You're not that good. Like, you're not such a great person that you, like, whipped up this desire to repent. If there's a desire to repent and follow Christ in salvation as a disciple, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is the work of um, God calling you to salvation. And that is the time to respond in obedience to that call, giving your life to Christ. But if you're on the flip side, if you just hate God, and yeah, you see what he's doing. You see what he does at church. You see what he does in the lives of others. But you hate it. Jesus is trying to wake you up. Jesus is showing you, hey, look, here's the reality of that decision. There is no forgiveness in this life, but in the life to come, the expectation is only wrath, only damnation. So we would, as leaders, just encourage you, consider who Jesus Christ is. Consider, as we've studied through Matthew, who he has shown him to be. And respond to that call on your life, that call to repentance, that call to discipleship. And we would all just love to talk about it with you anytime you want, any way we can help you out, any way we can talk about what that looks like and just how the Christian life is lived. We all do it very flawed and in a way that is very far from perfect. But we'll share that with you too so that you don't get discouraged when you are also very flawed and very imperfect because uh, that's where the forgiveness of Christ comes in. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for the opportunity to hear clearly from you the seriousness of the call to be your disciple, that um, it's not something that can be taken lightly. It's not something where there's a middle ground, but we only have two choices, and that choice has eternal ramifications. Just pray, Lord, that um, you would keep our hearts awake, that if we haven't come to a place of knowing you yet, that you would bring us to that place. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that um, from the moment of salvation and then on through eternity, you would just continue to be at work in our lives to shape and mold us into who you want us to be.
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.